Okay, welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. It's a Tuesday episode, so with us is both our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren, and also uh, our friend and my chief of staff, Megan Collins. Hi, guys. How you doing? Good morning. Good morning. Um, so, Hugo, I know we've got kind of a, a potpourri of stuff today. So potpourri. Why don't you lay it potpourri. out? Potpourri. Do you have any potpourri in your house? No. No, no, Do I you? wouldn't think so. Nope, nope, I don't. Maggie? But my mom used to have some. Definitely not. No. No. Okay. No potpourri here. Three, oh, for three. I think it's probably a gen- one of those things that sort of aged out. Yeah. Do you have anything that makes your, your house smell nice? So I, I have this like aromatherapy, like oil thing in my bedroom that I don't know how it got there, but it's there. <laughs> um, and once in a blue moon, I'll turn it on. But is it like pine or like you like you put some yeah like, you put some different like drops of oil in and you put water in but of course I mainly end up just spilling the water everywhere <laughs> right so but like, it's good smelling water I, I it doesn't even smell like that much I don't know okay <laughs> in our potpourri today we're gonna we're gonna start with you you've been you've been undergoing like a personal experiment with yeah. the wonder drug of the moment and what once you t- what's the latest with that yeah the latest is I'm no longer undergoing this experiment okay so um, what happened to to recap for listeners. Um, Manjaro is a, is a GLP-1, like Ozempic or Wagovi, and uh, the reason that I started taking it, most people are taking it for, for weight, some people are taking it for addiction issues, is I had read that they thought maybe it could be helpful with compulsive thinking. I have had OCD my entire life. Uh, there really is no underlying treatment for it. You know, I do take medication, but that's mainly designed to just kind of blunt the symptoms of it, not to really deal with underlying cause. So I was really curious because I felt like if this could, that could be life-changing for me. And both my psychiatrist and the endocrinologist I met with were just kind of like, look, we really don't know because it's so new, but but feel free to give it a shot. So I did. Um, I've stopped because I have lost 15 pounds uh, in a month. And I, I, did, I did notice when you came in this morning, you were I, looking very slender. Yeah, yeah and I, don't, I, don't, I didn't need to lose any weight. So... Right. Um, so not only that, but at, now that I'm 50, like you really want to avoid sarcopenia and lose muscle mass. Sarcopenia. That's when you lose muscle mass okay. as you age. So I've kind of went in the opposite direction. Now I got to put it all back on again. Um, so I had that. Uh, I've had some meaningful stomach issues. <laughs> um, and let's not talk about those. Yep. Uh, you put those together. Yep. Uh, and I am not taking anymore. However, I will say. I do think there was a positive impact. Okay. Um, look, it's hard to know if it was the result of the medicine or if it was psychosomatic or maybe there's just no difference in this particular scenario anyway. But um, I did feel a little more of a sense of calm, um, a little more present, a little more able to just sort of accept that when there are situations that I either can't control at all or because uh, I'm not I'm not bad at that. Where, where I tend to get more in trouble is something that I can control, but not until it unfolds. And yet my view is, oh, if I just think about it relentlessly, maybe that'll change, which right, isn't true right. and just, just psychologically harmful. Um, was able to take half a step back from that. So the real question now is, can I take some of the learnings of all of this and carry them over, right, into my day-to-day life, um, even without the medicine itself? Uh, the medicine clearly for me isn't a good option. Um, but I would say if you have OCD and you have also weight that you need to lose, or at least, you know, you're not in my situation where when you lose 15 pounds, you're wildly underweight, um, I'd give it a shot. I, I did think there was some real benefit to it. Um, and you uh, 
do you do you like, I guess there's a like an anxiety particularly among people who haven't really been on it that this will have some kind of negative long-term effects you, you're talking about the fear of losing muscle mass but was there anything else that you noticed in terms of no like, no just just look what it does do is I I could see why it works really well for addiction because right. you just don't have cravings right I was never hungry um, and but you're someone who like food is kind of meaningful to it, it's it a is, big part of your... it is and I would say that was another downside was right. I wasn't enjoying my food as right. much right. Um, so that was definitely a downside to it but I could see how it can be you know an incredible game changer for society in terms of treating people with addiction because you, you just don't have cravings uh, of any kind so it's you know and look is it possible that they're going to one day just discover this causes some sort of weird cancer or something i guess that's possible but you know they're not a, they've been around for a while they're just now being used in a much different way so i think that's probably pretty unlikely i think the negative effects are the ones that i described right and if you and by the way you know they're they're idiosyncratic so whatever stomach issues i've had doesn't mean that you would have them necessarily so, so you you did your last injection when uh, a week ago, Wednesday, so I think we're now on day 11 or 12. The half-life is five days. So, Are you uh, noticing a big difference? Um, somewhat. So it's, Did it's, you have breakfast this morning? No. Okay. Uh, but I had a lot of coffee. Uh, it is sort of, so it's 50% of my system. In theory, by Wednesday, it will be 25. It'll be 75% out of my system. There'll be 25% less. So, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to. But over the weekend... I did, even though I wasn't hungry, every time that food came, I ate like a full meal. Okay. And did it affect your sleep at all? No. So, because you mentioned coffee, so that was the, the regular intake of caffeine and all that, that was the same. Um, the, the coffee intake was deliberately increased to deal with some of the other issues. I, I see. Okay. <laughs> that we will not discuss. Yeah, that we will not discuss. Um, okay. So, uh, so we, we should check back about this and you're off it, but I'm curious just to see as you get further and further away from it, what, what your sort of behavioral changes are. And yeah. And also like, also I, I mean, cause Jack you get when you like start I'm gonna be fucking huge. Um, <laughs> and it, it's also just sort of like the conflict of things, right? So for, for example, um, I felt more present, but that also could be that, you know, I've been working on meditation now for about 14, 15 months. Maybe some benefits are starting to kick in. Or um, there was some greater sense of calm. I also hit the six-month anniversary of not smoking weed last week. Um, maybe some of it is that. So, you know, it's also hard to isolate, at least when it's psychological, kind of what the underlying factors are. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's one more, uh, it, it's not in the same vein, but there's another sort of personal story thing we were going to talk about today, which involves something that happened in the airport yesterday. Yeah, right? I was, I, I just was curious what to do here. And, and that's why I texted you in part today. Like, Did hey, you text me when it was happening? Yeah. In the middle of yeah. It? Okay. So like I was, uh, I was in Miami this weekend and I was flying back on American yesterday afternoon and I'm sitting at the gate. And there's a family, uh, they're younger, so they're probably like the kids were maybe six and eight, and the parents were probably in their late 30s or something like that. Um, uh, they're speaking Arabic, and the dad is screaming at the younger kid. Um, and like, was he doing stuff, the kid that was obviously couldn't tell? Right. No, it didn't seem like it. Okay. Obviously, I don't speak Arabic, so I didn't know what they were talking about. 
the mom was also upset uh, at the kid, not the not her husband or partner, whoever that was. Um, kid's crying, and he's kind of he's not f- abusing him, but he's manhandling him, right? And sort of it, throwing him around, yeah, a little bit. And like you kind of get in the situation, like me, like everyone who's sort of in my little two, like the row of the chairs and the right. gate, we're all kind of starting to look at each other, like, huh. <laughs> Was he a big guy? Not especially. Right. Like, I wouldn't have felt intimidated to, to go over to him. Uh, and I suspect that the minute I did, five other people would have popped up too. Right. Um, but it was one of those sort of like, what do you do? Because, like, he wasn't physically abusing the kid. We have all, as parents, freaked out on our kids in public, right? I know I'm, I'm guilty of that too. Um, but at the same time, you also don't obviously want to sit there while a kid is being... Abused. I remember Jordan and I were on a flight once, and it was sort of a similar thing, in, though in English, where a dad was freaking out on his kid and did shove him hard enough that Jordan and I kind of like both stood up, um, and then it just kind of like resolved itself. But um, yeah, I just don't know what to. What would you have done? I mean, it, it's it's always such a um, uh, it, it, the details and stuff really matter, right? So it's like just what feeling you get in the sense of like, is there is there you know harm about to happen that's that I could prevent, right? Those things you pick up all these signals. But I think my uh, operating strategy, such as it is, it sounds a little bit like yours, is just make sure you're paying attention, right? And don't like I think a lot of people will move away. They'll they'll want to be not have it be part of whatever they're doing. And I think, um, you know, particularly like I think about this a lot in the subway uh, when I see something where particularly where there's a vulnerable person involved. Right. Um, I feel like I'm a bigger person than most people. And, yeah. I'm, and I'm, I'm not a young man, but I'm not the oldest guy. Right. So, like, I feel like I have some responsibility to not be the first one to run away and be like, well, yeah. not my problem. I don't need to. So the subway yeah. is a little scarier, I would yeah. say. Like, the nice thing is because we're on the other side of TSA. Like, like I didn't have a, I wasn't going to get stabbed. <laughs> right. Right? right. Like, I didn't have a knife. <laughs> um, people on the subway who try to break up fights often do end up yeah, sometimes well, that, that, getting that killed. Yeah, that guy from the yeah. Avenue School who was a crossing guard who got killed breaking up a fight. Yeah. Um, it was a pretty awful, awful Megan, story. what would you have done in that situation? I, I liked Hugo's advice, like pay attention, but I'm definitely someone that wouldn't go over and just try to intervene unless I feel like it's there's nothing else that could uh, be helpful. I guess right. that's what and it, it is. Obviously, I mean, not that I would ever do this, but the the cultural response right is to whip out your phone and and uh and, and <laughs> oh, geez, it, right? that's so pathetic well isn't that what people do i mean that, isn't I, that worse i've, I've never well i've never it ever is done worse. It, yeah like or something worse terrible than is happening away. i'm just filming it i'm not yeah. dealing with it yeah yeah, yeah it's worse well it, i will say this not that i would do it or, or recommend anyone else do it but i do think it's a way of of if if you're if you're if your goal which of course it would be is to reduce is to make the the guy aware of what's happening, right? Yeah. So he's in some kind of cycle, maybe, where yeah. he's doing stuff that he p- may wish he weren't doing. Mm. Um, it, it might snap him back to some kind of reality. Then you'd have to make it obvious, like yeah. make it obvious, rather than the people that have their phones like in their pocket and trying to secretly film it. Anyway, make it obvious. I, anyway, you didn't it was film it. one of those. Didn't <laughs> film it. You know, it seemed like it ended up okay, but you know, it's one of those situations where it's just sort of like you don't really know. Well, what it makes to do. you feel powerless and 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 unsure of how to act in public. Settings. And then yeah. either they weren't actually on our flight or changed plans because. 
Yeah, because I, I boarded pretty early and then was kind of sitting right in the front. So, so like I saw everyone. I was kind of keeping an eye out to just see. And they never seemed to get on the plane. That's weird. So I don't know what was going on. Yeah. Okay. Um, so should we talk about some politics? Sure. Some politics. So one of the things you were texting me about was this. Um, so the 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 election, the presidential election, which we are now there's a presidential election. There, there, well, not really. I don't think. I mean, there's going to be one in in nine months, but it's a really slow moving ship, and it's probably going to kill us all before we get there. Yeah, um, it seems pretty bad. So this is going to be the longest. I mean, we're basically in the general election already. Trump has has wrapped up the primaries for all intents and purposes. Um, Biden obviously running more or less unopposed. So we know what it is, and now we're just waiting for the unforeseen. I guess. Well, I mean, I don't know what's what the what the game. Yeah, plan is. I mean, you can sort of. It's interesting because I was I was in Miami with the Operation Sandwich crowd over the weekend, although we did not do Operation Sandwich, but we did acquit ourselves. I don't well know why that makes me came, sad. Came the Operation food. Sandwich. I mean, I'm glad you guys still get together, but yeah. I feel like the sandwich aspect of it but, was... But one of my friends, Mark Moeller, who is a professor at DePaul Law School and a uh, lifelong Republican, um, although he says he hasn't voted for the Republican presidential candidate since McCain in 08, um, was making the case... He didn't vote for Romney? I guess he didn't. No. Um, okay. Was was making... Well, also, he's, he lives in Chicago, so this is oh, probably yeah. Obama, yeah, Obama pride. hometown yeah. crowd, yeah. Um, making the case for sort of some optimism, which was nice to hear, in that he thinks that if you look at the way things are going in terms of the economy keeps growing, unemployment is low, inflation, other than that blip in December, seems to be doing pretty well. There's sort of expectations of cutting interest rates. Consumer spending is high. Um, and while when you explain all that to voters under the name of Bidenomics, it means nothing to them whatsoever, Nonetheless, if they feel it, it does change the way they feel about life in general. And his view is all of that and the fact that China is really weak right now. And so therefore, the likelihood of them stirring something up meaningful in the next year is unlikely. Um, Although one could make the exact opposite argument for that. But yes. <laughs> yeah. Is, is, so his, his view was he thinks that Biden wins and he kind of felt optimistic. So it was nice to hear it. I don't know that he's right, but really smart dude. So No, I've heard know. that line of uh, argument. And, you know, there was this critical sort of economic uh, hinge moment where the, uh, the rate of inflation dipped below the rate of income growth yeah. for the first time and whatever, you know, and that's like that that moment where sort of the lights start to go on a little bit in terms of like people's uh, sense of, you know, economic well-being. Um, but as, as, as you were texting about, you know, we talk about like this is a real, you know, big election and all these things, but really there's six states where the outcome is going to be decided. And mm -hmm. even within those states, you have some really tiny little clusters yeah. of undecided voters that, so we're not, you know, what America feels doesn't, really matter no it's like what we're, does pennsylvania feel and what is this suburban area outside philadelphia yeah think? i mean we're talking literally as, as little as forty-five thousand voters in the whole country that need to be reached and turned out i was having a dinner with a friend of mine i was in chicago last week and he was talking about like i should quit my job and and right go work in the campaign to... and i said well, what would you do he said well i'm a specialist in voter turnout and i said rob there's gonna be like tens of thousands of dollars spent per like swing voter or key voter to turn out like their problem is not going to be lack of people like you working on it or volunteers or resources of any kind it's more like you know i got to imagine that between both campaigns and all the super PACs 
we're looking at at least a three to four billion dollar total spend on the presidential election to ultimately reach somewhere between call it 45 and and a couple of hundred thousand people right and like just my question is this has to be the most wildly inefficient way to to run a railroad you know <laughs> in that like we're gonna spend <laughs> both sides so much money on tv ads they're gonna like just go in and out and by the way Whose view of Biden or Trump is still like unformed enough that a TV ad or the kind of ad's going to make a difference, right? Nobody. Um, and they're going to knock on the doors of these poor 45,000 people <laughs> every day. Uh, and by the way, that may not work either. Like DeSantis, that was his Iowa strategy, when didn't, didn't help him. Um, and I knocking just, on the door was his strategy in Iowa. That was, yeah, the, yeah, the, the field, those the, are kind the of field. grassroots, and right. it just didn't, didn't matter. So, um, I, because it, because people knew how they felt about Trump, either they liked him or they didn't like him, and that was it. So maybe it helped and they knew about the Haley, they Definitely didn't like it. him. Yeah. Right. Um, and so it's just it it just strikes me that there's going to be billions of dollars raised and spent um, for ultimately reaching a very small group of people in a wildly inefficient way. It also kind of makes me feel like you know I, I gave a meaningful you know six figure contribution in twenty in twenty twenty. I don't see the need to do that this to year. the DNC or to who? Uh, it was like one of the super PACs. To, okay. to like specifically, it was to, uh, try to get turned out in Florida. Um, what's the difference? It feels like a waste of money. I'd rather put that into school meals. Well, for sure, but like the money is going to be spent, if not by you, by other people. Sure. And what? What yeah, would you it's advise? Like, a, like it's like a full said, employment for political consultants. No, yeah, totally. But but what? What would you do, right? I mean, I mean, the reason people are spending all this money is because they don't know what else to do, right? Like, there's no, uh, there's no other mechanism that, yeah. that people can think of. I, I mean, I, I think, you know, I would just go as hyper local as I could, and to the extent that you can develop psychographic profiles of the individual voters, which, which you can, right, right, is what do you understand about that voter? Like in your mind, when you think of this, forty five thousand people, this is a uh, a middle class it's, suburban it's, it's one of three white person or well, no, no it's, it's it's one of three categories right so it's the actual swing voter who is someone that says you know i don't like joe biden i don't like the way the world is um i thought my life was maybe a little bit better under trump but i don't like him or approve of me either and the question is can you show them that through trump's both policies that he's proposing and criminal acts and whatever else they should either not vote for him, vote for Biden, or stay home. So that's group number one. Group number two would be Democrats, by the way, especially people of color, who are just not excited about Joe Biden and are thinking about staying home or maybe even voting for Trump. And how do you get them to turn out instead uh, overwhelmingly for Biden? Because again, you know, within a state, Philadelphia may not be a county that's in play, but if, if Trump has strong turnout in Western Pennsylvania, the more black votes you're picking up in, in Philly, obviously, the more it offsets that, right? And so the second would be that Democratic voter who, you know, probably will vote for you, but isn't super motivated to vote. And how do you push them out? And the third would be the Republicans on the same side for them, right? You know, someone who, if they do vote, it's probably going to be a vote for Trump, but they're not super excited about it either. So it's, it's those three buckets. The thing that the so so there was one of the big pieces of news last week was the jury 
award to E. Jean Carroll of eighty some million dollars um, for the defamation suit. He's never going to pay it. I don't no, understand no. the point of any of this no. shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, of course, I think you're right, but I also think that when you're describing those voters, right now, the the true Trump loyalist doesn't give a shit. Probably only makes them more excited to vote for yeah. Trump. Whatever we've we've seen that phenomenon uh, over the last several years, but the the swing voter like it seems like oh god how could i vote for this guy who's i mean not only did trump lose the case but he acted uh, you know but, like like an asshole like he, like he often does so so it, it does seem that that again maybe, maybe not a maybe, huge effect but it, maybe, let's say I, it, I hope look i i hope so but then like to me the the case that was the strongest against trump was the georgia case and now she's managed to totally invalidate the whole thing through her fannie willis through her own behavior right to have to ha hire someone give them taxpayer money having a you know affair with them and then have them spend money on you personally is graft right and so what is an excellent case is now going to be completely undermined in its narrative um if not thrown out entirely um, because of what she did, so like, it so just, do you think that sort of balances it out? Huge, is that the point? I just think it's a huge. He just catches this guy like, I don't know, man. He seems to catch every fucking lucky break in well, life. What about Trump on the border deal, or the fact that he's been trying to shut it down? Do you think that has any impact no, on what people think? No, because I think that all that happens is it remains a mess. People blame Biden for. I mean, then the reason he's shutting it down is he wants it to continue to be a mess because I think that that helps. Uh, hurts Biden and helps him. Yeah, but is he making it too obvious by showing that, like, doesn't matter? No, I don't then think it's... there's such a thing as too yeah. obvious anymore. No. Can I mention one thing? I, I, I texted you about this, Bradley, but last week, I guess it was Tuesday, the day of the um, New Hampshire primary, uh, the New York Times had two stories about Nikki Haley on A1 that mm -hmm. were the same story, literally the same story. One, uh, so how does, sorry, there so was, you were an editor at the New York Times. How, how does that happen? Uh, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine. I mean, when I, 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 it's been more than 10 years since I was there, and A1 was this critical piece of real estate. I mean, there were t two meetings about it a day, and it was like a big, uh, like a big focus of the entire newsroom. Now, I think what it shows is that, uh, I mean, it's not that they don't give a shit. I, I think it's that, that the, the amount of eyeballs on it, the amount of people talking about it and thinking about it and saying, hey, these two Nikki Haley stories are really the same thing. One of them, they were multiple byline stories, and there was one uh, one one byline that was the same on both stories, and they were basically the same. I mean, they were the same story. Um, and what it <laughs> what it made me think was like, oh my god, we, like the general election isn't until November. Like, what are we going to be talking about? Like, what is the New York Times going to be going to be publishing? And I mean, they have thirty something like thirty full time campaign reporters yeah. who now have. Like, what are they going to be doing? I mean, I, maybe they'll be knocking on the doors in Pennsylvania and like bothering those. They people. probably will be interview, yeah. interviewing voters. Yeah, and maybe I, they'll be maybe so, they'll be turning them into what what will happen if if reporters just. Uh, it will probably push them if Times reporters are knocking on doors. We'll probably end up scoring more votes for Trump. Okay, so the Times is going to tip the tip the, the vote to. Uh, yeah. tip the vote to Trump. Well, I will say, so the one other thing I was like, I was like, okay, now I really have to get rid of my, uh, my paper subscription to the New York Can't Times. I believe you still have it. Well, I, I have this, I have a couple of dumb theories about it. One is the one day a week when I actually sit there and have a coffee and like read it, I really yeah. do enjoy it because you do, I mean, everyone says this, but it's true. You see all these stories that you never, yeah. you know, you're going to read some story about like water policy in the West that you would never, ever read 
online because it's buried and yeah. you know, everything else. Sure. But then the other thing, which it completely has not worked, is that I think, well, my kids, it'll be around. Like they'll pick. Yeah. I, I mean, they they would sooner like sort through the garbage than like like read. It's the New also York Times. just a massive amount of paper that piles up. Yeah, it's a massive amount you know? of paper. Yeah, it's true. Um, should we talk about the big tech watchdog agency that a bunch of uh, moderate Democrats and Republicans are pushing on Chuck Schumer? Yeah. Do you like yeah, this? You no, like this? I mean, I'm fine, whatever. Look, the the upside of it would be if they could create this, then by definition, you know, uh, hammer always sees a nail or, you know, there's always the void is always filled, whatever it is. So if you create a bureaucracy designed to try to regulate big tech, the people who work the bureaucracy will seek to issue uh, rules and things like that to have uh, an impact. But a couple of things. W one is, it's very kicking the can down the road, right? I remember when I worked for Chuck, like every time we didn't have a good press conference to talk to, to have, we just announced a blue ribbon committee to study this issue. And it was all fucking nonsense. And the blue ribbon committee never did anything. And no one listened to their recommendations anyway. So to me, the risk here is, you know, we have massive harms in society today. We have all-time high teenage suicide rates and self-harm and everything else. Um, we have a society that's being ripped apart at the seams because of social media. We have a solution to that problem in repealing Section 230. Um, and rather than dealing with it, we're just going to kick the can down the road even further by just creating a bureaucracy. That'll take a couple of years just to, like, get that started. And then also, like, what kind of power are they going to have? Because ultimately, the only way that that bureaucracy would be meaningful is if through the rulemaking process they can do things that, that um, Congress has been unable to do. And my guess is anything that would require an act of Congress is still going to require an act of Congress. And so, like, it, you know, their ability is going to be super at the margins at best. And so, like, there's nothing wrong with it. But what is wrong with it is if if people like Schumer and other politicians point to it, like, right. I did something. You right. didn't do fucking anything. But so we, we mentioned this once in a previous podcast or maybe a couple of times. But so one of the I'd say one of the great regulatory success stories in the United States history is the Federal Aviation Administration. Mm -hmm. Right. Which like like the I mean, we take for granted how safe. Uh, air travel is in the yep. United States. We complain about all the other aspects of it, but we don't complain about planes falling out of the sky or crashing into right. each other. Um, and that is an example, no, of a of a very specifically targeted, like regulatory body on a very particular industry that's done a great job. Sure. So, is the, it? Can you see in your mind that a tech sort of agency could be if 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 like they are given model? sufficient authority? Yes. I mean, the FAA has the ability to. Right, ground, shut down anything. Yeah, ground right. fleets, shut down flights, like do all kinds of stuff like that. And therefore, they have the tremendous power right. over the airlines. If this agency could have that kind of power over the platform, sure. Um, but given that the platform has been able to block any sort of meaningful reform in Congress itself, um, why would they then allow the underlying sort of authority for the agency to have that? Also, you could say the FAA brings a lot of folks over from the military who I just think sourcing from that for employees who are just, I would say, more effective or yeah. have a history of having to do things pretty quickly. So it'd be like, where are they sourcing the, the You're staff You're right. And it's kind of nonpartisan, right? Yeah. I mean, so I, look, if you look at, for example, take the CFPB, right? Like that was- What a, is the CFPB? It was Consumer Protection Finance, Finance yeah. Bureau, something like that. Uh, Elizabeth Warren was the champion of it. And it got created under Obama. 
And, you know, it's just a political football, right? Where now Democratic presidents just say, okay, you on the far left, this is yours. Go have a blast. Right, go, stay stay go out of treasury, stay out of state, right. stay out of military, knock yourself out on this shit that I don't care about anyway. And then Trump goes the other way and basically eliminates it entirely, right? And so um, it, part of why the FAA works is none of us want to die in a plane crash. <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, it's all it's nonpartisan in nature. The military is a great place to recruit from for it. And so it's just highly functional. Yeah. Um, I worry that this tech agency would be more like a modern day CFPB. Um, I sent you an article from it was actually from a couple of weeks ago in The New York Times. It was right. I think it was right before uh, Jan one. There's a piece by Benjamin Applebaum, who's uh, really one of the best uh, reporters and writers at the Times. Mm -hmm. um, and it was called, uh, I Want a City, Not a Museum. Yep. And it was this uh, pretty great argument in favor of, of building a lot more high-density housing um, in the city and yep. replacing. He did this, this I mean, just like total... Uh, trolling uh, New York Times readers uh, kind of riff against Brooklyn Heights um, and these like very pretty historic neighborhoods where everybody lives in these like 19th century buildings and is so proud of themselves. Um, meanwhile, like, you know, basically people can't afford to live in New York City. Right. Um, and uh, so a couple of questions about this story. One, one, it, it, it uh, I, I don't know how much, you know, support is out there for, for this idea. Um, it certainly got a lot of intellectual interest at the moment. Um, I mean, what, what you would need, and look, Governor Hochul last year did propose some reforms that were along those lines, and they were killed almost immediately because what it meant was bringing more affordable housing, which means poorer people and darker pe people with darker skin, um, to suburban communities in that case who didn't want them, right? Um, and so... There's a suburban version of it. There's an urban version of it. Where the urban version is a little different is, ironically, the same people who love community board reviews and environmental impact reviews and project labor agreements and all of this stuff that ultimately just makes it impossible to build new housing are the same people screaming about the lack of affordable housing, right? So, like, if they genuinely cared about solving the problem, they would agree to remove all of the roadblocks. However... Um, you know, everyone likes to look good on Twitter. And then when it becomes like, oh, my beautiful, quaint Brooklyn Heights neighborhood might not be so quaint anymore. Um, now they're not so progressive. After all, there was a companion piece. Yeah, I was going to um, mention that. Uh, I forget the name of the guy who wrote it. It's it, uh, Vishan uh, Chakrabarty, Barty, Chakrabarty. Yeah, and so his firm did a... Practice for architecture and urbanism. And I, yeah. all I know is taking my yeah. word of what he wrote. I didn't look further into it. Um, but they did a study where they looked at kind of vacant lots like areas of new york city where you could build you know mid-sized buildings that weren't significantly taller than the other things in that community uh and felt like they could build about half a million more units which would house i think he said 1.2 million more people um you know that sounds great did and, you look at the visualizations for that yeah they were cool they were they were really cool except there was one that was in a kind of more of a um more of a uh, kind of single family type neighborhood uh, like sort of like Ditmas Park, these sort of big homes, and they just stuck a building in between these two houses. And you're like, this is like literally the suburban nightmare that that somebody would do this. They would just now it, it, it may well be good policy, and and uh, but it was funny of all the visualizations, they all looked pretty cool. And you're like, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, then you look at it like people are going to lose their shit if that happens. You know, but you also it, it, that's true. But you know, a few things. One is. 
for the city long term to be high functioning, it, it needs a middle class, or let, let's be honest, it's an upper middle class, right? Because the, the New York middle class is significantly, even if the cost of living is much higher, they're also much better compensated than, than their peers around the country. Um, but you need people who work here to be able to live here, right? That's number one. Number two, um, it, I actually think it would have a really moderating and positive effect uh, on New York City, I think more population and more people who are just kind of regular people, and they're not like crazy left-wing activists, and they're not Saudi billionaires. Um, they want, you know, safe neighborhoods, good public schools, you know, ba basic functionality. And then if they become a voting block, um, they can help push candidates who are more focused on operational ability uh, rather than sort of ideological views or swagger or whatever Eric Adams has. Um, and um, I think that would be a really good moderating effect on the city long term. I mean, I was in Tokyo a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things that struck me wasn't sort of like the giant buildings, because the reality is the skyline was less impressive than I expected. Um, you know, it's not like they were just stunning building after stunning building like if you're in Dubai or Shanghai or even New York or Chicago, right? Um, but there was like as far as the eye could see, literally just 12 to 15 story buildings for just miles and miles and miles. And you know what they don't have in Tokyo? Brooklyn much Heights. <laughs> Brooklyn Heights, but they also don't have as much of a homelessness problem. They don't have as much of an affordable housing problem because they've simply built enough density. Well, what about more sty towns? <laughs> Like that kind of concept versus like one building here or there because I feel like that's sure where... I think you could there just aren't that many spots for something like that. Um, you know, there's a little bit of space out kind of in East New York, kind of Floyd Bennett Field area where maybe you could do some of it. So, so sure, but I, I think maybe where that that architectural study was was helpful is insane. Rather than sort of looking for the home run answer, which then just gets tied up in political debate and process forever, just be aggressive. And look, um, Adams did have his has his city of yes policy. I think it's probably the most innovative thing he's proposed as mayor. So I think he he does seem to get this, and hopefully that will um, that'll move forward. But but I, I really do think that this may in some ways become the defining issue of New York City over, and our success or failure over the next couple of decades because um, a lot of the other problems that we talk about, it's crime and quality of life, for example, are somewhat emblematic of the larger question of if we have a big, thriving population here, that will then lead to much better outcomes on everything else. And transit, if it feels, for sure, too. Transit, <laughs> right. And if it feels hollowed out because it's either really, really rich people who, who live here or maybe even just live here part-time, yeah. and then people who have to live pretty far away to do the service jobs, um, I think that just sort of takes you down the drain. Yeah. Well, so what would change? You, you mentioned uh, uh, Adam's City of Yes policy. So he's he's talked the talk somewhat on this issue, but you definitely need the, you need the person who's going to invest a lot of, uh, a lot of their political capital in this that doesn't seem to be like it's going to be him. Um, so where does it come from? Is it just the next mayor? Like, is it, is it, Maybe. Is, does it come from somewhere else? I mean, I think, I think the first thing would be, you know, I would love to, and I just can't imagine doing this, but I think this is a place where the far left could really lead, right? I think that if AOC or someone said, you know what, 
we need to change and the things that we sort of tend to hold sacrosanct are actually things that are really impediments to, to people getting affordable housing. So I'm going to lead the fight to get rid of a lot of this stuff. Um, because right now, the way that people in wealthier neighborhoods justify what's effectively redlining and racism is by claiming how progressive they are, right? And the community must have a say in this thing. We must see what the impact is on the snail. And we have to have, you know, unions building every single thing. And it's like, that's just all like progressive talking points to cover over the fact that they just don't fucking want new people in their communities. And so I think you first need the left to step up and say, you know what, this is bullshit. We're not going to, you don't stop using these excuses. They're not valid. Um, and if they pushed from the left for reform on all of this, I think the center would gladly go along uh, in most cases. So I think that's where, where it starts. Um, but it gets back to our underlying thesis of politics, which is every policy output is a result of a political input. I haven't said that in a while. It's if, good, if good to hear. Every, actually, it's funny. <laughs> that was last week. I was, uh, I think I gave four or five speeches uh, when I was, and I said that so many times. Oh, really? Like, you bored know, yourself? Bored myself to death. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, um, you know, for AOC or, or any member of the far left in this city, whether it's at the city council or the state legislature, um, to, to do that, they're going to attract a lot of blowback um, because it's a controversial thing to do, which means that their own popularity is going to take a hit. And the question is, are any of them willing to suffer politically um, to try to do the right thing? All evidence across the entire political spectrum, and this is not, this is true for the center, this is true for the left, this is true for the right, is no, they're never going to fucking do that. So, uh, I don't know. I feel like there's actually less to suffer for in that. Because if you look at what's happening with New York City and the, the areas that are being the most preserved, we went and worked at Village Preservation. Yeah. They are the richest people in the city that are pouring money into preservation efforts. So they, they pay people basically to grassroots organize around yeah. it. Yeah. But at the end of the day, those aren't the same folks that AOC, I think, like energizes the base around. So, so but then when they say that, when they start running ads saying, AOC is a hypocrite on the Green New Deal because she is destroying our environment by removing all environmental protections for new housing, for new construction. They would never say housing, new construction. Yeah. Or AOC claims that she cares about, you know, grassroots democracy, but now she's taking away the voice uh, of little people just to let big developers push their projects through. Once that all happens, they're staying strong? Well, because they have so much money that they could be so loud where that could be the bigger message. But I think on the flip, if there's smart enough people on the, the far left side with this, it's the fact that these uh, areas are predominantly white, are not inclusive, do not yeah. bring in the migrants that we are trying to figure out what yep. to do with. Yep. Um, so I think that there's like an easy counter. It's just like how the amount of money that these folks have to keep. And I love the village. I loved working there, but it is so preserved. And then you go over to Brooklyn in neighborhoods that I would say the far left has tried to organize around like Bed-Stuy and Crown Heights with gentrification. But that's gone on. That's continued. And I'm not saying that that's, you know, they, they weren't as effective. And I think it's in part because the very wealthy neighborhoods have the money to stop it from happening, where the poorer neighborhoods who may want to keep their cultural institutions, that's not happening. So I think AOC just has more of the folks that have actually lost this battle. And now what does it mean we need to build housing? Yeah, I, I, I hope that's right. Okay, okay, I have one more question for you, Bradley, and then and then we're going to get your recommendation for the week. Okay. Um, so we talked about uh, a week or two ago, the podcast that Freakonomics did about academic fraud mm -hmm. um, and just how rampant it is and how basically, you know, the the 
the studies that you see quoted in the newspaper can't be reproduced, you know, about 50% of the time or even more yeah. than that, I think they said. Um, so you are a consumer um, of a, a lot of research into like personal happiness and satisfaction, stuff like that. And, yeah, and, behavioral and economics. Behavioral economics. It did to make me sound a little. Yeah, uh, yeah, a little more. Yeah. A little more, a more yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, so now that uh, now that we've seen, uh, uh, now we've listened to that podcast. How do you approach those? And what's, so, you're, you're, there's a leading question because I sent you a text right. during the week. You asked me the question, so now I'm asking you. Yeah. So I um, I was reading an article. I know Arthur Brooks or somebody. Yeah, so Arthur Brooks. Sure. You like Arthur Brooks? I, I do. Although I have found. He's writing too much, and as a result, right. it's, it's getting less, less interesting. Less important shit to say. Right? Um, but I was reading an article that talked about a point, so I clicked on that link, and then it link it mentioned something called the Jour- Journal of Happiness Studies. Yeah, and I was right. like, oh, okay, I've never heard of that. Right. So then I clicked on You that. subscribed immediately. Yeah, immediately. Uh, I clicked on that, and they had all these articles, which were, by the way, like going to be hard to read because they're, they're, they're journal articles, so I was thinking, okay, if I, before I plunge in, do I want to do this? And then I thought about that conversation we had last week, which is, you know, if, if the view out there is that 50% of journal articles are fraudulent, then it's sort of like, am I going to invest the time to read this thing when there's a 50% chance that what I'm reading is bullshit anyway? And so I texted Hugo and said, what, what do you think? And you were sort of encouraging about it and saying, you'll, you'll be able to figure it out. But I don't know how that's true. Well, I, I wasn't that you'd be able to figure out. It's, a, it's that, I mean, again, it's something we talk about in the podcast all the time. Like, if you read the newspaper and you think like every story is true and, and you just have this kind of like uncritical eye towards like, oh, it's in the New York Times, therefore I can believe it, that, that really the way to get through life is to always have a critical eye on everything and to be looking for, well, what are the reasons that this might be true or might not be true or resonates with other things I know? Or you sort of triangulate constantly to look for support for things that interest you. Because one of the things about the media right now, more than ever because of the internet and all that, is that they want to tell you these kind of alluring things that get your attention. And a lot of times those are things that may not be true or only partially true. And therefore you must all, you always have to sort of be on guard about yeah. like whether, whether you believe something or how much credence you put in anything. So my feeling about a lot of those happiness studies and stuff is, and I don't read as much of it as you do, um, and behavioral science and all that. Um, but is, is you look, you sort of build your own cases constantly and, and, right. and thinking about, I mean, it's what well, Arthur, that's that's dangerous too, because then it's and you just it's just a constant confirmation bias as opposed to a good point trying yeah. to learn. Yeah. So yeah, look, I I think that that's right. Um, I I do think that all the sort of reading I do into sort of happiness science or behavioral economics or whatever it is 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 been useful for me for two reasons. One, I think it has helped me develop a theory of life that, generally speaking. Uh, now feels to me like I'm kind of on the right track in the way that I mm-hmm. see the world, which is kind of wrapping, taking this back to the beginning of this podcast. Perhaps the sort of insights that I felt like I got from the Manjaro had nothing to do with the Manjaro at all. It ha- has to do with all this of, other work you've been other doing. Work. Yeah. The other thing is, um, and it's funny, I have a, a professor from law school named Cass Sunstein who I took a ton of classes with, and it was all about behavioral economics and social norm theory. And I said, he's like the architect of the nudge. Yeah. yeah. And I sent him an email a couple of months ago and I said, you know, I didn't realize at the time and I'm I'm sure you didn't either, 
But weirdly, I think what you were teaching me was pretty good training to be an early stage venture capitalist, because in a lot of ways, what we're really betting on are, are changes to normative behavior. Will consumers want to be able to use this type of service or product if it is available to them, right? And then our, the other question for us is, that can we make that legal, right? Which is a separate question. But even if we can, will it then catch on? And uh, sent him a note saying, you know, the truth is, like, at least for early stage, you know, venture investing in a weird way, kind of all that thinking about normative behavior was really helpful. He was seemed he's wrote back a very delighted response because you normally probably don't get emails like that. Um, it probably hadn't occurred to him either. So um, so it, it has been useful for my life. And I'll say just to sort of wrap this up, one is uh, this is not my recommendation, but it is a recommendation, which is even though I've found Arthur Brooks's columns in the Atlantic to get a little have become a little tedious. Uh, he did a podcast with Peter Atia not too long ago that you can find it on Peter Atia's, um, on his feed. And I, it was long. It was about two and a half hours, but I thought it was just Did you listen to two and a half hours? I did. Wow. Uh, and I thought it was just excellent. At, um, at 1.0 speed or like 1.2? No, I do 1.0. Okay. And then f- along those same lines, um, Sam Harris has an app called Waking Up, and you have to pay for it. Um but he does these conversations with various, you know, behavioral psychologists, happiness experts, meditation guru types, and they really get into the research of things like, you know, pleasure and hedonism or sacrifice or fulfillment or whatever it is. Um, and I have found a lot of those to be really interesting um, as well. Um, but my recommendation is kind of a weird one because it it. Normally, my reading is such that if I'm not into a book after 40 or 50 pages, or really at any point, even if I'm two-thirds of the way in, I just stop reading, right? I have sort of a clear, bright line rule about it. And this book came out last week called Martyr by Kaveh Akbar that is incredibly hyped, right? Like the Times Review is literally one of the best, most positive reviews I've ever seen of any book ever. So I was super excited to read it. And I'm so con- I, I'm so conflicted by it. So I read it in two days. So clearly there was something to it, right? Because I ripped through it. Um, a lot of the writing was so great that I like was highlighting stuff. I couldn't stand the main character. At a certain point, I was rooting for him to kill himself just so we get the fucking thing over with. Because I was like, you know what? You're right. Your life is fucking pointless. Just end it. Um, and yet. There were insights from it, like I found myself quoting something uh, of it to someone else the other day. And so it's just, it's rare that a book for me inspires that much. It's not even ambivalence, but like strong feelings, and yet I don't know that I recommend it. And then interestingly, he comes out of that the writer's program in Iowa, and I was there on Thursday with, with the people at the program, and the book came up, and I said, well, I've already read it, and here's how I felt about it. And my question to them was, so you guys know him. Do you, if you gave him the choice to say, okay, this reader loved the book, but, you know, moved on quickly, or maybe kind of hated it, but felt very strongly about it uh, and evoked a lot of conflicting mm-hmm. emotions, what do you think he would prefer? And they all picked the latter, that, that my experience is actually, for the writer's perspective, more valuable for them than just saying, like, this is... A, I'm sure they'd love you to feel strongly and just love it. Um, so it was interesting. So, But but as a result, maybe people should read it. Like, I I, I don't know. I mean, because it really did stick with me, and I thought, I thought some of the writing was just brilliant. 
And man, I fucking, and, and by the way, this is not like a book that kind of covers a lot of ground. Like 98% of it's just about the main character, right? So like, it's not like you just kind of dip in and out of this guy's life. Like the whole book is his life. Um, and I couldn't stand him. So it, it's, it's a complicated book. All right, so people are going to have to make up their own minds. Yeah, to triangulate. I don't know if I recommend it or not. Well, it's it's here at PNT. If anyone, yeah, it is. I would say this: if you had read the reviews and you were curious, don't not read it. Um, But if you hate it, don't be surprised. (laughs) (laughs) Be warned. All right, all right, Bradley. See you you next week. Thank you. Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Netware, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.